Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya, that's Creole for something extra. In the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, white lawyer Atticus Finch, played by Gregory Peck, sits outside of a jail holding a black man and confronts a mob who've come to lynch him. You in there, Mr. Finch? He is. He's asleep. Don't wake him. You know what we want? Get aside from that door, Mr. Finch. Walter. I think you ought to turn right around and go back home. Grace Elizabeth Hale grew up hearing that the real-life heroism of her grandfather mirrored the fictional courageous confrontation of Atticus Finch. But the facts proved her wrong. Lynching or murder by mob has historically targeted African Americans, and no place was that more true than Grace's home state of Mississippi, which holds the record for the most lynchings in the country. During her research as an historian and scholar, Hale uncovered the shocking details of one lynching that put a lie to her family lore. In the Pines, a lynching, a lie, a reckoning documents her family history and the bloody vigilante tradition embedded in the nation's history. Grace Elizabeth Hale is an award-winning historian and writer who teaches at the University of Virginia, an internationally known expert on the regional culture of the U.S. South. She's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and American Scholar, and appeared in the PBS documentary The Rise and Fall of Jim Crow. She's written four books, including her latest, In the Pines, A Lynching, A Lie, A Reckoning. And author Grace Elizabeth Hale joins me now from Charlottesville, Virginia. Welcome to Under the Radar, Grace. Thanks so much for having me, Callie. So, Grace, um, I know that the dedication in the book is to the people who have died at the hands of the law. Um, John Grisham wrote the foreword. And uh, he makes the point, as you do throughout the book, this is American history, this is Black history, and for you, it's personal history. In fact, your personal story is an American story. You focus on South Central Mississippi, where your grandfather, the sheriff, lived and where the man was lynched that you tell us about in the book. So first, why don't you tell us about the Piney Woods, because the name of the book is In the Pines. Well, I think it's a part of Mississippi that most people who don't live in Mississippi don't imagine when you say the name of the state. Uh, people generally who aren't from that part of the world think of the Mississippi Delta and the great um, big big houses and the large uh, plantations and um, and a black majority population in most places to this day. Um, this is a very different part of the state. Uh, the south central part of the state was a part uh, that was more about farming than plantations, although there were some plantations and some 
uh, people who owned slaves there. I certainly am not trying to deny that history, but it was a place uh, where the, that sort of uh, economy did not really flourish. And interestingly enough, uh, it was a place that became a kind of mecca for Black people after emancipation who were fleeing the Delta and other parts of Mississippi uh, where the race relations were so violent and so oppressive. And they would come into this South Central Piney Woods area where they could buy land so at the heart of the book, um, of course, you talk about one lynching specifically, but lynching in general. And I think what would be important for all of us to know is your explanation of lynching, because we think of it as somebody being hung from a tree. But as you say, no, it's a broader meaning. The generally accepted definition uh, was one that the NAACP used, um, and that was that a lynching is any killing in any way, it doesn't have to be a hanging. Um, but the main characteristic is that uh, more than one person is involved in that killing and that the killing has to be done with some pretense of enforcing the law or upholding some sort of vision of justice or tradition. Not that it was done for those reasons, but the people who are doing the killing have to make that pretense. All right. So in that context, now that we understand South Central Mississippi and we understand what lynching is, you dove in following up on a story you'd heard first as a young girl. So tell us the story about your grandfather that you were told. Well, I grew up with a story of my grandfather that really did um, uh, make him sound like, uh, if not Atticus Finch in the book, certainly Gregory Peck playing Atticus Finch in the movie. And uh, and that story was that when he was sheriff, a, a black man had been accused of raping a white woman, and then uh, my grandfather had arrested and jailed him, that a mob had assembled and tried to take him out of the jail and that my grandfather had spent the night there at the jail with his gun, threatening to shoot uh, his uh, th the men who had gathered there, uh, many of whom he knew, many of whom had probably voted for him if they um, tried to take his prisoner out of his jail. Uh, and the story was that he believed in the rule of law and that he uh, was willing to uphold it even uh, for this Black man who had been accused of what he would have considered a quite serious crime. So the Black man was Versi Johnson. Tell us who he was. Well, that was one of the projects of the book, was to try to find out who he was, because in the family story that I grew up with, he he sort of served as a as a as a foil, if you will, for the heroism of my grandfather rather than a real person. And so when I dug into his history, I found a history that is pretty common in this part of the world. Uh, he was uh, from a couple of counties over. His family sort of migrated back and forth in a sort of small area that straddled some changing county lines. But he uh, came from a, a line of people who had been enslaved in that region. His great-grandparents had settled there after emancipation uh, and raised uh, their family and then their, their families' families in that region. His mom went back a very long time there. And he grew up in a family of multiple siblings, uh, sharecropping, farming, uh, you know, certainly not a well-off family, but a, a family that had deep ties to the that particular area, also in the Piney Woods. 
Now, the story that the Black community told about what happened to Versi Johnson versus what your grandfather, uh, the story that you heard about your grandfather was what? Share that. Well, the Black community uh, found out about a relationship between uh, Versi Johnson and a white woman whose name I was never able to discover, uh, the woman that uh, he was accused of raping, that they had a consensual relationship was uh, what the Black community knew even before the white community knew. One day, somebody actually, a white person, uh, saw uh, the two of them together and then started spreading rumors. And that set in motion a series of events that resulted in Mercy Johnson's being arrested and ultimately killed. So one of the things that you make clear early on, in fact, in the in the first pages of uh, your book, is to really talk about that there's not been much research about how much resistance there was to racial integration. And some of that was beginning to happen um, in the years, uh, even in, in the outreaches of, of Mississippi. And a lot of white people felt extremely uncomfortable and upset about it. Um, and I'd love you to read from pages, looks like 15, just about this firm resistance um, and, and what, how that played out. Because not as much research has been conducted into opposition to the civil rights movement, it is easy to miss how hard many white Southerners fought to preserve white supremacy anchored in Jim Crow segregation. A set of laws and conventions created to control how and where Black people worked, studied, lived, shopped, traveled, and accessed the ballot box. Many Americans do not know that presidents from FDR to Nixon deferred to the congressional power of white Southern Democrats, or that the country's fabled post-war consensus, a now celebrated age of relative bipartisanship in American politics, rested on widespread white acceptance of black exclusion. Even fewer understand the local implications of this uneven consensus. To cite just one powerful example, 33 Mississippi school districts, including Jeff Davis County, ran separate Black schools through the summer of 1970, 16 years after the Brown decision. In the mid-20th century, segregationists had reason to believe that they would be able to preserve their Jim Crow world for another generation. Black Americans and their allies had reasons to fear that these white Southerners might succeed. In Mississippi in particular, Black and white residents living through this period would not have recognized the sense now shared by many contemporary Americans that the victory over Jim Crow was inevitable. That's my guest, Grace Elizabeth Hale, reading from her book, In the Pines, A Lynching, A Lie, A Reckoning. All right, now we have a broader context. We understand what the, uh, both the emotional, uh, illegal situation was going on in south-central Mississippi and other places uh, in that region of the south during this time. We understand what the resistance was and the fear about what might happen if integration were really to happen. Um, and we have a story that you grew up hearing about the bravery of your grandfather. Now, later in life, you discover the story is not true. How did you find out and how shocking was it for you? 
Well, it was initially very shocking. I mean, I, I sort of have a two, two step uh, process of, of coming to this realization. And the first step was uh, going to graduate school, researching Jim Crow segregation and lynching for my dissertation, which became my first book, and realizing as I did that work, uh, that the story that I grew up with could not have been true. I, I looked it up in the newspaper, and when I read that story, it just made it clear that this was a big cover-up. And, you know, to be honest, and I'm not proud of this fact, I didn't really have the courage then as a young scholar to dive into it more deeply. In some ways, I guess I would say I was scared to know what I might find out. Um, it was only later that I did that research. Um, this will sound like a digression, but it isn't. But it was it was what happened in Charlottesville in 2017 that uh, really uh, shook me to my core, not because I was shocked that there was white supremacy in America, because as a scholar, that was something that I had spent a lot of my time researching. But it's one thing to study something, and it's another thing to have those people with their guns and, and their ammunition and, and their costumes and all of that marching through your neighborhood uh, and attacking your neighbors and, and killing someone a few blocks from your house. Just as a reminder to everybody, that was the march of the neo-Nazis uh, yelling, we will not be replaced with torches, in which uh, Heather was killed. And the thing that was really, truly the most upsetting to me is when they marched through the University of Virginia that night, and I worked there and have for years, there was a tiny little group of counter-protesters holding up signs, trying to ring the, the sand around the statue of Jefferson and, and sort of hold back the halt right. Several of those people were my students. And um, that, that just really got to me. And so it made me realize that a lot of the work that I and many, many historians, I mean, historians have been doing this work since, you know, for more than a century, since uh, the times of Jim Crow themselves, right? This research has, has been going on for a long time, but that somehow we weren't connecting to people at the most visceral level. And it dawned on me that white families perpetuate these lies and that official history doesn't really touch those family stories. And that I could get the courage to do that. Perhaps that could be an example to other people to face the way these lies continue to support white supremacy in the present. And so your grandfather, whose name we've not mentioned, Guy Ori Berry, um, was sheriff. And this happened during his first term as sheriff. He ended up serving two other terms later. But but just to put that again in the time frame to understand. So you do the research and you discover what? Uh, you go back and you actually ask your grandmother, who was still alive, if it were true. I do. And she said uh, what she always said, frankly, when I asked her about the past was that things that happened a long time ago, she she didn't like to think about and that she didn't remember. And the present was so much better than the past that that that's you know, what she chose to think about and remember. And I will say, to be fair to her, that she grew up in extreme poverty um, with her own father being killed and other acts of violence uh, to her family. And so some of that was coming from a place that at least I would say is understandable, although at the same time, there was also certainly denial there about uh, the things that her own husband had done. So now you understand that actually 
something different happened uh, than than what your you had understand understood to happen, and your grandfather was not innocent in this. He actually led uh, the group of people out back to the farm where the killing took place, and then what happened? Yeah, so he took the he took Versi Johnson along with um, two highway patrolmen that that those are state police officers in Mississippi. He took. They, the three of them, uh, he and the lead, took Versi Johnson back to this farm where they said allegedly that this um, rape had happened. And then in, 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 in front of a group of people, they shot him there. Though the, what they reported to the newspapers was that um, Versi Johnson had attempted escape. Now, the reason that this isn't believable, well, there are multiple reasons. One is that this is an excuse that is quite frequently presented by law enforcement for excessive use of violence um, and has been for a very long time. So any time that you hear someone's trying to, you know, killed in an escape attempt, it's probably good to have at least some sort of questioning in your mind. Um, But that's part of it. But the other part of it is that the Black community remembered that there was a a large crowd there. Um, I found uh, one man, for example, who was close friends with the man who ran the Black funeral home. And he called and asked to come and pick up Versi Johnson's body. And when he got to the site where Versi Johnson had been killed, there were many, many people there. And he heard the officers, including my grandfather, talking about how they had killed Versi Johnson. But the other evidence is is actually even um, right there on the official document. The death certificate for Versi Johnson is signed by my grandfather, and uh, the, the death certificate says that he was shot by officers and that there's no need for um, there to be any kind of further inquest because uh, there were witnesses, multiple witnesses present. Um, and those witnesses would have had to have been people who did not participate in the shooting. So even there in the official white documentation, uh, there is evidence that a crowd of people were there to witness uh, Versi Johnson's killing. So a couple of things, uh, points that you make in the book that I think are important to highlight. Uh, first of all, many attempts to pass anti lynching legislation, and it didn't pass until 2022. That's one thing. And then I thought this sentence uh, in your book was really important. You wrote, while there were always some whites in the region who openly criticized other whites for taking the law in their own hands, many understood lynching and other acts of vigilante violence as community policing. That was pretty uh, a pretty intense uh, sentence to read and to think about. And now you're faced with this horrific information that what you thought happened did not happen. And it's also very much a part of the history of this country. How do you how did you keep going to deal with it first? I don't I'm not sure I could have, actually. I'll be frank with you. It wasn't easy. I I think that sort of having a multiple stage process and understanding gradually over years and then getting the specifics when I when I conducted this research in the last few years gave me a kind of way to enter into that space, if that makes sense. I, I know that my own family um, members uh, lived in the Jim Crow South and I teach that history. And so it's something that I know more about, I guess I would say, than most people. All of that to say, um, 
it wasn't easy. It was extremely difficult. And it, it is something that frankly still makes me cry. But I think I had sort of more knowledge going in than maybe your average person would have, because I knew that my family members had lived in these systems of oppression and that they um, certainly had not made a name for themselves as white people, the rare white people. And there were those people who opposed those systems. Now, you said, had you not moved away, because you didn't grow up, you visited your grandfather, and and you should describe him as the loving man that you knew um, many summers as a kid, but you lived somewhere else as an adult. And had you not gone away from the system you've just described, you, you're not certain you would have been able to hear uh, what was the lie in all of this. Yeah, I, I, I really think that it's important to recognize that one of the privileges of whiteness for many white people in America um, is a, a kind of freedom from history, from being sort of defined by it or or even trapped in it, in a sense, at least um, in their own thinking. And so uh, my mom grew up in Mississippi in this place, the Piney Woods. Um, she moved to Atlanta for work. And my father also moved from the rural South to Atlanta for work. And I grew up there in a very diverse, multicultural kind of, of place that was very, very different than my grandparents and the community that they lived in, in Mississippi. And so each of those steps brings you farther along the road. Um, my parents in that suburban space did not want to think about the past. They were very much focused on the future. Um, uh, you know, of course, in that way that we have sometimes of rebelling against our parents, that perhaps is why I became a historian, right? <laughs> I, I was going to actually focus on the past. Um, but of course, as I do say in the book, the other reason I became a historian is because my grandfather, the very same one who committed this horrific act, was himself uh, very much uh, in the vein of Southern storytelling, a really fabulous storyteller and very much a kind of local historian. And so in many ways, he helped me to be interested in the past. But it was leaving all of that behind, going to graduate school in the Northeast and having that distance, frankly, that allowed me to have the space to start looking back. Now, when you first learned the story, Grace, you heard it from your mother, who had heard it from her mother, your grandmother, when you uncovered the truth, wh what was your mom's response? My mom's response was that my grandfather was a hero and that um, the story that she knew, and I, and I would say probably had convinced herself was true. I don't think, to be honest, that she was ever told what happened. I don't think that she um, ever knew what happened. Um, but now in her, you know, she's she's very much an older person now, and she she doesn't want to re-examine it, can't re-examine it, and really continues to believe the story that she told me so long ago. What do you want readers to take away? Um, toward the end of your book, I thought you made a very powerful statement about um, your your family's not alone. There's probably many, many, many other families with some kind of history like this violent racist history in the past, and and it has to be confronted. But I wonder, as people read this story, and it'll be shocking to many of them, um, one hopes anyway, be, uh, what, what you would have them 
take away as a, as a central point of of the story that you tell that is both personal and part of the nation's history? Well, I, I want them to take away that our sort of focus and to some degree, you know, important focus on issues of representational inclusion and equity, um, issues of affirmative action and diversity, that these are very important things, but they're but they in and of themselves are not a reckoning with the past injustice and the foundational acts of material and other kinds of oppression that have happened that might be making people feel better in the present and certainly making some people's lives better in the present. And I'm not suggesting that those things shouldn't happen, but they seem to have become what some white people at least focus on as opposed to focusing on really facing up to the truth and the levels at which uh, to which this history goes. Much of what prompted violence across the South in the mid-20th century, and this is absolutely true in Jeff Davis County in the Piney Woods, was Black success. Black people that moved to the Piney Woods really made a life, made very strong communities. They created their own uh, church, private school, and many, many Black farm owners in this area, some of those farms over a thousand acres um, it was Black success. It wasn't just Versi Johnson that was being attacked in this act of violence. It was that during World War II, the white people in this area sort of for, for the first time kind of like sat up and realized what a successful Black community existed all around them. And, uh, you know, this might sound ironic, but because of segregation, they didn't interact as much with those people and didn't seem to realize how well some of them were doing, and then that was very threatening to some people. It's a um, it's a somber examination of our nation's history, plus your personal story, but it's written beautifully, so I thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for giving me the chance to talk about it. Grace Elizabeth Hale is an award-winning historian and writer whose latest book is In the Pines, A Lynching, A Lie, A Reckoning. It's available in bookstores and online now. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're going out on Strange Fruit, the song about lynching made famous by jazz singer and activist Billie Holiday. Here is a fruit for the crows to pluck for the rain to gather Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is to Lee. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. Here is a strange and bitter Right.